0: Uh, Tonight's reading is from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, and reading verses 1 to 10. Um, It's on page 1186. So 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, and starting at verse 1. Paul, Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Let's Let's pray
1: before we begin this evening. Let's pray and ask God by his spirit to help us to focus on the chapter we've heard read from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Father, you bring us back to scripture. You bring us back again and again because we so easily forget what your written word teaches us. And help us to see that this is an awesome passage, that it speaks as it spoke then with great power And help us to come to terms with the challenges that we face as we seek to share the gospel with others in this, our land, in this day. So speak to us and strengthen us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. Amen. It's it's always a bit of a temptation to do a head count at this time of year and see how many people are here and how many people are away. Is anyone actually on holiday here in Basingstoke? Not a single person amongst us. Oh, one over there. That's very sort of oh, I see, only partly. Well, that tells us something about the massive exodus. It's always a debate when we come in at this time of the year, shall we go the motorway route or shall we come through Overton? And we came tonight through Overton, which I think was probably better than joining the multitudes on the motorway. But the good thing, of course, is that from many churches, and St Mary's, there's no exception, Christians are involved in camps, in conventions, in festivals in all kinds of projects that give an opportunity to share the gospel, not just here in the United Kingdom, but in different parts of Europe, where the privileged dog sitters of one Reggie, uh, who is a cocker poodle, and uh, full of energy, and his mum and dad are away with the team working in Romania this week, so it's not just here in the UK, but across Europe that Christians go out to share the gospel. And it's exciting and encouraging to see how many come to know Jesus Christ through the witness of camps and events during the summer period. But the question often is, How do we relate those superb experiences in many cases during the summer period with the routine of daily church life, as it were, when we're back into the swing of things in the place where we live? Now, that's a tough one, not just sometimes for young people, for students. It's a tough one for all of us. How do we relate the gospel through which we become Christians, to the church, which is the place, for the most part at least, where we grow as Christians. And I think that's where the passage we have before us this evening can be a great help. That's where Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, which we're beginning to study this evening, can reorientate us to the basics because it takes us back to the basics. It tells us not only how, but in New Testament times, what was involved in the people in a particular Greek city, this case Thessalonica, uh, how they became Christians, but also how their church came into being. And we'll see more of the significance of that in just a moment, but look with me at the breakup of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, if you will. The first four verses, for example, uh, focus on the church of God. Paul writes in verse 1, to the church of the Thessalonians, and he gives thanks for them. He speaks about the kind of people they are, and that's in... The first four verses and then, in verses five to ten to the end of the chapter, he goes on to describe the gospel of God, which the church had believed and is now sharing with others. So right at the start of the letter, he's making what may be to us a fairly obvious connection between the gospel and. The good news about Jesus, and the church where to grow as disciples of Jesus and the fundamental point that he 's insisting on is this: church and gospel are inseparable. It works like this in thessalonica paul and his team, and notice that in the work of evangelism, he didn't work alone, he worked with others. The team shared by word of mouth the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and so the gospel, the good news, created the church. And then the new Christians in Thessalonica, who were the church nothing to do with buildings here, but people, the new Christians spoke out and lived out the gospel in such a way that new groups of believers were formed and other churches were created. And these new Christians in turn told others so that the good news spread and the church grew so that Paul can write, if you look with me at verse 8, these incredible words, the Lord's message, rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Now, what I've just read and said needs a bit of unpacking, and I'll do that in a moment, but first, take note of Paul's incredible words in verse eight. The Lord's message rang out from you. And the word that's used here isn't used anywhere else in this form in the whole of the New Testament. It's, it's from a verb which simply means to ring out, to sound forth, and it's usually used in those times of musical instruments, particularly bells, and trumpets for fairly obvious reasons. But it was also used of the sound of a gong resounding. Remember the old style movies where the guy, the muscle man, banged the gong and it sort of reverberates through the cinema. Well, that's part of the meaning here too. It's also the word that's used of the roaring of the waves on the rocks on the coast. And also in a storm, the sound of the thunderclaps. One of the people writing about this long ago, reflecting on the letter of Paul, said that sharing the gospel was like the sound of a loud trumpet. And another one said, Paul's words were not just words, but thunderclaps. So you can see something of the force of this word that he's using. The gospel proclaimed by those new Christians in Thessalonica made such an impact that it seemed somehow to reverberate throughout the mountains and the valleys of ancient Greece. Uh, It was at that point when I was thinking about this passage that I, I began to feel uncomfortable because what does that really have to do with our experience of gospel sharing in the contemporary church here in the West? It made me stop and think, because here in Thessalonica, something seismic really was beginning to happen. A new society was coming into being. They didn't know it at the time. They simply responded to the gospel. But these same people who heard the gospel and responded to the gospel shared the gospel whenever they could. They spoke about it. They spoke about their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. And look at verse 3. Their lives began to reflect a different quality of faith and love and hope. Now, there's a sermon or two even in that bit which I'll resist preaching this evening because the gospel bit, Mike's grinning from there ear to ear If uh, as I say that. You're obviously going to put your watch on and time me, but uh, um, that opening section tells us volumes about the church. But at the very least, people could see in those Christian believers a quality of faith and trust in Jesus, a a manifestation of love and service and hope for the future that made them stop and think. Now, of course, uh, we rightly ask the question since then, in the early days of the church, has this ever happened in some other part of the world uh, in the same way? I believe it did at the time of the Reformation 500 years ago in Europe, and I'm thankful that we get the chance to think and reflect on that during this coming autumn, when, as many of you know, we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the famous nailing of uh, protest points and concerns by the monk Martin Luther on the church door uh, in a place called Wittenberg. More of that in the autumn. But has it happened like that at any time in history? Yes, it has. Is it happening like that anywhere in the world today? yes it is could it ever happen again here in this our land yes it could but it comes at a price and i want to spell out through three observations what i think paul is telling us in the latter part of 1 thessalonians chapter 1 First of all, this, we who seek to share the gospel must learn to live out the gospel. Look at verse 5, the second part, and verse 6. This is what Paul says. You know how we, that's Paul, Silas, and Timothy, you know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, both in their public preaching and their private witnessing, Can I suggest that someone may want to check out that guy's okay? Thanks. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, both in their public preaching and their private witnessing, when they were talking to people one at a time, used words very carefully. It was, as verse 8 reminds us, after all, the Lord's message, the gospel of God, and that's further clarified in chapter 2, verse 2. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. It wasn't just the Thessalonian Christians who were making a difference. Paul, Silas, and Timothy lived in such a way that their lives reflected the gospel. And he's not ashamed or fearful of saying in verse 6 you became imitators of us and the Lord. So the first thing we note, the price it comes with, if we want to see the land in which we live changed, is that we who seek to share the gospel must learn to live out the gospel. And the second point that Paul makes here is this. We who seek to share the gospel must expect to suffer for the gospel. Look at verse 6 again. You welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that remarkable? If you go to the original historical passage which uh, tells of these events happening in Acts chapter 17 verses 5 to 15, there's quite a long description of what those Christians went through, both Paul, Silas and Timothy and the others in the process of sharing the gospel. And they're picking up on the theme of the suffering we must go through in order to see the church grow. And of course... Once we use the word suffering, once we think about what we might go through, um, we need to be wary of doing a sort of compare and contrast of suffering from one place to another, from one person to another. Uh, Generally speaking, that's not very helpful, because obviously there are huge variations from one place to another and one historic period to another but the fact remains that we need to face the fact of suffering if the church is to grow sometimes it takes the form the form of threats and if i can reminisce for a moment when we lived and worked in argentina in buenos aires there was a sense of menace and threat when we picked up the phone. Um, And during the military dictatorship, could hear the phone being tapped because people wanted to know, presumably, what we were up to. There was another kind of menace when we were helping students in the universities as Christians to witness and I remember sitting in my little office in the centre of the city, and some guys came in one day and threatened that we'd be in big trouble if we kept on with this particular procedure. And they were Marxists. You see, we don't know at the time quite what the significance is of what we're saying or doing. But if we're doing it as Christians, there will always be an element of threat from a hostile world. It can, coming back to the English scene in which we live, it can be being ostracized. It can be pressure on our families. It can mean not getting the promotion in the workplace that perhaps we think we deserve. It can be any number of expressions of pressure. And it can even include hostility from religious people, people who are religious but not necessarily Christian. But what Paul's taking for granted here as he writes this letter to the the Christians in Thessalonica, these new believers... Whatever form it takes, the sharing of the gospel will have a cost, and we need to face up to that. We who seek to share the gospel must expect to suffer for the gospel. But do you notice, too, that quite uh, amazing added bit uh, In verse 6, you welcome the message of the Lord in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Now, if all we sense is gloom and all we do is look at the problems and the difficulties, um, Satan will get in and not only destroy our peace but take away our joy Uh, at the same time that the military in Argentina were in power, we ran camps in a coastal area called Vija Hessel. And it was a place particularly popular with young people. And the purpose of the exercise is that they would camp around the site we had during the day. We'd have teaching sessions. And they'd go out in the evening uh, from 8 o'clock onwards and just mill with the crowds in the area where the coffee, coffee shops and the restaurants were and they would seek to share the gospel. And they'd come back several hours later, and this was the remarkable thing. Tired, sometimes fairly battered as they got into conversation with people, but the overwhelming sense was one of joy. And it was quite difficult to stop those debriefing sessions that we went through day after day as they came back. Because within the struggle of sharing their faith, there was also great joy, which came from the work of the Holy Spirit amongst us. So let's remember that the, the sharing, even if it's costly, brings us joy. We who seek to share the gospel must expect to suffer for the gospel. And this is my third observation. We who seek to share the gospel must be passionate about the authentic gospel. Look at the second part of verse 9 and verse 10. This is what Paul writes. These are the people who've brought the message, he says, of how your lives have been changed, how the church has grown in Thessalonica. They tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now it's pretty obvious to most of us who think about it that idolatry is just as rampant among us today in the Western world as it ever was amongst the first century Thessalonian Christians. If we want to understand the society in which we live, we need to see how readily we put anything in the place of God, and that's idolatry. And across the ages, it's always been a massive temptation for people to put the things God has made and given us in place of God himself, and Paul writes about this uh, with great clarity at the beginning of his letter to the Romans, of course, The time of the Reformation, another great reformer, John Calvin, describes us humans as a perpetual idol factory. Just think about that for a moment. In an outstanding study that Tim Keller, the American Christian leader, has done on idolatry in New York, his native city, the city where he lives and works and where the church has grown uh, significantly under his leadership. He describes idolatry there as the sin beneath all the other sins. And there, there's a remarkable book uh, by a Sri Lankan Christian leader, some of you may have seen it, called simply Gods That Fail." And this man talks about modern idolatry and its impact on Christian mission. Well worth reading. So, whether we're talking about then or now, whether we're talking about ancient Greece or contemporary Britain, we need to know that whatever, whoever, holds us in bondage, that bondage has to be broken, and it's broken uniquely by the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did for us on the cross. There has to be, in this sense, a decisive break with the idols. We may not know what they all are in our lives all at once, but as the Spirit of God works within us, we have to be consciously turning from the idols to serve the true and living God. So we're to turn from sin to Christ. We're to turn from the darkness in which we walk into the light. And we're to turn, says Paul, from the idols that hold us in their grip to the living God. And that turning, that repentance, must result in serving the God to whom we've turned. We turn from the idols whose slaves we were or whose slaves we still are into the service of God whose children we become and that's a marvellous difference. And as we do that, we wait for the return of the Son of God, of Jesus, from heaven. And if you look at the last bit of the chapter, you'll see that the serving of God and the sharing of the gospel go hand in hand with the waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. There's, I think, a very helpful comment in John Stott's commentary on 1 Thessalonians where he writes this, however hard we work and serve, there are limits to what we can accomplish. We can only improve society, we cannot perfect it. We should never build a utopia on earth, for that will have to wait for Christ to come. Only then will he secure the final triumph of God's reign of justice and of peace. You see, with the return of Jesus, God's justice will be manifest as never before. We live in a society that tends to forget that God is just. We emphasize his love over against his justice. In societies where Christians are downtrodden or deprived or ignored or marginalized, it's justice that their songs are often about the justice of God. And on that day of the return of Jesus, we'll see why God is consistently and wholly antagonistic to evil in every form and however much in the here and now we may like to deny our accountability to God, on that day, there will be no hiding from him. Surely that should, should add a sense of urgency to way, the way we share the gospel with others. On that day all of us will have to give account of the lives that we've lived. But says Paul, on that day, for Christian believers, Jesus, our saviour, Jesus, our protector, will also be our deliverer. On that day we shall see the final triumph of God's reign of justice and peace. And for that, you and I should be working with all our might. Let's pray. Father, we pray for that... Work of your Holy Spirit in each of our lives, in our church, that we may think and pray and reflect on the words of Paul and that seismic shift that you brought about in that Greek city of Thessalonica as people like us heard the gospel. And responded to the gospel. Work on you, we pray, in our thinking, our feeling, our lives, that we may graciously know the joy of your Holy Spirit, whatever the cost, as we share the good news with others. And we pray this for their good, for our good, and for your glory. Amen.